Let's turn in our Bibles to Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Amos 6, 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and uh, begin here with uh, a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in your, um, just your providence, specifically through revealing to us your word. We saw at the nine o'clock hour how your word is one of the means that is used to draw us to have a confident assurance of our faith. We pray that you might use your word today in the passage that we will be in, that you might use it to uh, shape us, to convict us, to encourage us, to point us to Christ. We are a world that is um, running away from you as fast as we can, and yet there is hope in the gospel. We pray for our nation, pray for our community, Orville and Wayne County. We pray that you might rebuke, even as this passage tells us, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. We pray that you might help us to apply this, to be those who go out and preach the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> on May 18, 1980, at 8.32 a.m., Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted, sending ash... 15 miles into the air and blowing off the top 1,300 feet of the mountain. Some of the statistics that I read on this eruption are as follows. 3.7 billion cubic yards of mountain blasted away. I don't even have a category for 3.7 billion cubic yards. I could not picture how much that is. That's a lot. (laughs) One river valley buried as much as 600 feet deep. 24 megatons of energy released, more than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Forest stripped of trees and soil down to bedrock. Enough timber blown down to build 300,000 homes. 27 bridges and 200 homes damaged or destroyed. Ash, this one was interesting, ash crossing the U.S. in three days and circling the entire globe in two weeks. Ground temperatures as high as 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit. It's hot. One article says the following, the powerful lateral blast didn't fit their understanding of the mountain's past. The power of the blast surprised them, and despite two months of earthquakes, ashfall, and a growing bulge on the north flank, the timing of the eruption was a surprise. There's no sign that it was going to happen at 8.32 in the morning of May 18th, says Seth Moran, uh, the scientist in charge at the Cascades Volcano Observatory in Vancouver, Washington. There was no short-term indication. You might call this the calm before the storm. This phenomenon can be observed frequently in nature, that is to say, the calm before the storm. 
my mind goes immediately to that gentle breeze right before the thunderstorm. You know that breeze that it kind of, it blows, I don't know how it does it, but it kind of comes down and then blows the leaves up and you can see the white bottoms of all the leaves. You know that? That's, that's kind of that gentle breeze, that calm before the storm hits. Uh, you can observe this calm before the storm in significant, um, in, in wars throughout history. You have no warning, you have no indication, and then suddenly the enemy is upon you. And we see a, a similar theme in our passage in front of us today. You have a ringing cry of woe at the beginning of the passage where we read this, woe to those who are at ease. And there is a kind of complacency that has overtaken Israel, and now they are all comfortable, they are all at ease, and everything looks like it's going in a good direction. We have all the comforts that we need, everything is great. It is the calm before the storm, because by the end of the passage, you have this very stinging rebuke that says this, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. Woe to you who are at ease, you're the first ones in line for exile. We might say that this passage takes us from ease to exile. And that really is what the first seven verses of Amos 6 is about. Let's read this passage together today, beginning in Amos 6 in verse 1 through verse 7. We read this, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore... Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. We're going to look at this in really, uh, I think, a rather simple outline today, and that is we're going to see the first round of woes, the second round of woes, and then we're going to simply see the therefore or the judgment. The Lord simply says, woe to those who, dot, 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 dot. And then he says, woe to those who, dot, 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 dot. And then he says, therefore. Rather simple and straightforward outline of the passage. In these first three verses, we see a list of woes given to Israel specifically for their self-indulgence and their self-confidence. Just consider the first verse here. 
Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations who come, to whom the house of Israel comes. Amos chapter 6 in verse 1 is really, quite simply, a call for us to reject complacency. Israel had become complacent, and they were essentially lulled into a false security. They, had, they, they were surrounded by all of the modern comforts of life. They hardly had to get off their couch to do anything. They just simply had everything that they wanted in a moment's notice. They thought that the calm that they were experiencing would mean that there would be no storm, but it was coming indeed as the text unfolds for us. Sometimes we do the same thing. We think that we are secure because we are in America, or we think that we are secure because we have adopted certain strategies to keep us safe, or we think that we are secure because we could do no wrong. And really, in, in America, it, it, it may be that we have reached the, the point to where um, we can feel more complacent than any other nation that's gone before us. You could sit down on your couch, uh, almost literally, not quite literally, but almost literally never having to get off of it. You can order all of your groceries from your phone, and you can watch all of your television shows and play all of your video games, and, and you could live your entire life without moving. Complacency. And I would hope that this is a wake-up call for all of us here today. But I especially would like to rattle your cage, so to speak, if you are at ease in Zion while you are trusting in your good works. You are trusting in your good works, and therefore you are at ease in Zion if, if you believe that your salvation is a joint effort between you and Christ, if you, if you believe that it's a combined effort, then that means that you're trusting in yourself and you are counted among those who are at ease. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. Or... You are at ease in Zion, trusting in your own good works, if you believe that your cooperation with God's grace contributes to your salvation. Or if you believe that you could lose your salvation, since that would make your final salvation dependent on you. You believe that, that my, the state, the final outcome, is in part or in whole dependent on me. And you are trusting in yourself. C.H. Spurgeon, actually it was one of his, uh, one of his first sermons. Um, and uh, he preached a sermon on Amos 6.1. And I'm going to read to you what he said. Uh, it is a little bit of a, a lengthier quote than I normally uh, give here. But, but he, he brings this idea of, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion to bear on this idea of thinking that you will get there on your own. Um, and I'll just ask you guys in the back if you can kind of scroll through that for me while I read this. Um, 
Spurgeon says this in his sermon on this verse. He that trusts in his own good works leans upon a broken reed. As well, or or basically, you may as well attempt, as well attempt to cross the storm-tossed ocean upon a child's paper boat or mount to the heaven of God in the philosopher's balloon as well as attempt to put out the fire of a blazing prairie by carrying in your hand a little water scooped from a neighboring stream as hope by any means to get rid of thine own iniquities by doing better or of thy past sins by future holiness. I tell thee, man, thy prayers, thine almsgiving, thy fastings, thy repentings, thy church goings, thy chapel goings are all as Nothing in the eye of him who demands perfect obedience and will never accept anything short of perfect righteousness from man. That's the standard. Away, away, away with these gaudy rags. They will be unraveled ere long. Thou mayest toil at the loom night and day, but thy work shall be rent in pieces and not a shred shall be left. For thou art spinning nothing but a spider's web, which justice shall tear in pieces. And like Adam, whose fig leaves could never cover him, thou shalt cry before God, I knew that I was naked and I hid myself. Woe then to those who are ease in Zion, whose name is presumptuous. Let me tell you of one of the traps of being presumptuous or being complacent, or we might say being at ease in Zion. It's okay. It'll all work out. I'll get there somehow. There there are different traps of, of presumption, but let me just give you one example here. Perhaps maybe uh, you grew up in the church, you always did all the right things, and you were uh, the perfect little child, Right? And you recently have begun to do some introspection, and you are now wrestling through, as many people have done, and maybe even in combination with the 9 a.m. service video that we're doing here, uh, Assurance of Faith, you're wrestling, am I really a Christian or not? Have I really been saved? And you think of perhaps maybe the embarrassment that this would be to tell your parents, my parents have thought that I was a believer in Christ, or the embarrassment that it might be to have your close friends in, in church hear about this. Let, let me say a couple of things about this. First of all, don't push it off. Deal with it. Second of all, this is not an embarrassment to come to Christ. It's not an embarrassment to you. Why, why would this be humiliating to you in some way? Um, the gospel message is already about how humble we are and how needy we are. Um, and there is a certain kind of thing that could happen in a presumptuous spirit where we can allow ourselves to be at ease in Zion, where instead we need to wake up from our stupor and seek the Lord. Israel would not do this. They would not wake up. They just presumed upon God's grace. Well, we're Israel, so we must be okay. Well, I just grew up in the church. I must be okay. 
They felt secure, as the verse says, on the mountain of Samaria. And specifically, as you can see in this verse here, it was a rebuke against a particular group of people who are called the notable men, the first of the nations. Now, I just want you to make one mental note that we're going to come back to in a minute, and you'll see that this talks about these people as being the first of the nations. I want you to note the word first, because we're going to come back to the word first a little bit later. But these are the notable men, uh, the nobility maybe, the, 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 the somebodies in Israel, the first. And so the Lord talking to these people invites them to take a look at the other nations. He says, woe to you who are at ease. Woe to you who are complacent. By the way, let's take a look at these other nations around here. And so in verse 2, you have passed over to Kelna and see. From there, go to Hamath the Great, then go to Gath the Philistines. And then he simply says, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? These nations, we know from history, were attacked by Assyria uh, and Aram. And essentially, the invitation here is... To, he's inviting them to, to, to think through this question. Do you think you'll fare better than them? Look at what happened to those nations. Look at, look at what happened to the, them through this invasion. Today, we might, see, we might say, like, look at the fall of Rome. Do you think we're better than them? Or we might say, look at Iraq or Afghanistan and all the conflict and the chaos and everything. Do you think that we in America could avoid the same thing? You think there's something special about us? Or we might say it this way. Do not presume upon present security. Things can go south very quickly. A volcano can erupt when you don't think the volcano is going to erupt. The calm before the storm. Another way of saying this is to say that you should not put the day of disaster far away. Which is exactly what verse 3 says. Look at verse 3. He says, O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Do you know what it means to put far away the day of disaster? God's never going to judge us. We're never going to have to account for this. It's... (laughs) No, it's never going to come. There's never going to be an accounting or a reckoning that's going to come. Israel believed that their day in court would never come. Now, I will say that one of the most common ways people do this today, we could probably come up with a list of ways. Um, and you've probably all heard this before, some, somewhere, Um, But one of the most common ways that people today fall into the trap of Amos 6.3, you who put far away the day of disaster, is this way. You sit down with a person, and you share the gospel with them. You preach Christ to them. You preach their need to repent of their sins and believe on Christ so that their sins can be washed away, so that they can be cleansed of their sins, so that they can be a believer in Christ, and they could be in heaven with the Lord one day instead of an eternity in a place called hell. You preach that gospel message to the person. 
and they respond to you by saying this. I see what you're saying. And maybe they even say, yeah, I think the gospel is true. However, I want to spend a season of my life just living it up a little bit. Anyone ever heard a similar thing like this before? Some of you have? Okay. I just, when I'm older, after I've had my fun, then I will repent and believe on Christ. Now, I don't know that we, anyone has ever kept statistics on these. I don't know that you could keep statistics on this. But it would be interesting to see how many of those people follow through (laughs) on their commitment to become Christians late in life. I would guess that that number is probably almost zero. Um, They are, as Amos 6.3 says, putting off the day of disaster. Ah, I've still got time. The Lord's not going to call me to account for this for many, many, many years. I can just repent and believe in Christ the last minute, and then I could just scoot into heaven having had my cake and eating it too. I could do all of that. But if you look at this from the other angle, what's interesting is that I have never, maybe this is more anecdotal, I have never in my life ever talked to a Christian who became a Christian late in life and said, boy, am I sure glad I lived it up for 60 years before I became a Christian. I've never heard anyone say that. In every single instance, every single time, again, maybe this is anecdotal, someone go do the research, I don't know. Every single time I've ever talked to a person who became a Christian late in life, they always say, I cannot believe I wasted my entire life. I squandered it away. And those are the people, and by the way, we need to be, we, we, we need to have a certain sense, this is a rabbit trail, okay? We need to have a certain sensitive spirit to people who are in that camp, okay? Why is this? Because I've talked to some of these people who are plagued by guilt. Now, I would say because of the gospel, they don't don't need to bear that guilt anymore. Christ has forgiven all of this. That's the point of the gospel, okay? But there needs to be a certain spirit of sensitivity to this person because this person can get stuck in a kind of a cycle where it's like, I just squandered my life, I squandered my life, I wasted my life, look at all this. Okay, I just want to say, okay, but in your wallowing, you're wasting now, (laughs) So go and live for Christ now, today, okay? But the point of all of this, to get off of the rabbit trail and back onto the main trail, is, is simply to, to, uh, to acknowledge the point that we are not to put off the day of disaster. That we are not to say, oh, it'll co- the reckoning will come way, way far away, and I have plenty of time to take care of this. Now, ironically, what happens in Amos 6 is he, he talks about you who put away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence... The, the irony of putting off the day of disaster is that you bring it closer. That's, that's, that's the uh, irony. Um, you, this, this is always the irony of working this way. If you say, oh, I have plenty of time, 
And then you add sin upon 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 sin. Every time you do that, unbeliever who is refusing to deal with the day of reckoning that is coming, and I, and I say this not knowing everyone's heart here today, if you are an unbeliever out here today, let me just say that every time you add sin upon sin, you are picking up firewood and you are throwing it in the fire of God's wrath. You're heating it up. And one day the reckoning will come and it will all come back on your own head. Repent and believe in the gospel. Today. Don't put off the day of disaster. Don't say I'll do it when I'm in my 60s or my 70s or my 80s. Don't say I'll do it tomorrow. Repent and believe in Christ now. And by the way, it is it is a misconception to think that my days before salvation are the fun days and the days after salvation are the drudgery days. When you become a Christian, everything is more joyful. Everything is more satisfying. Everything is... You know how much joy there is in Christ? Don't put off the day of disaster and therefore bring it closer to yourself. That's the first round of woes. The second round of woes comes in verses 4 through 6. And we read this. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. This second round of woes describes in detail the opulent lives of the Israelites. This was, you might say, the original lifestyles of the rich and famous. I mean, this is cataloging thing after thing after this after that, all of these kinds of things. And he describes them as stretching themselves out on their couches and eating the best meat. Most Israelites do not have these things available to them. In verse 5, he accuses them of singing idle songs and inventing musical instruments like David. This verse actually is a little bit challenging to understand, and there's been a little bit of um, ink spilled in the commentaries on exactly what is being meant by this. Uh, He says, Woe to you who, like David, invent instruments of music. Um, I think it's probably best to understand what he's saying here is that they are in a sense, comparing themselves to David. Um, Because 
What David did, at least, David, his whole life was a bit of an up and down, but at least this particular component of it is a good thing. I mean, we look at the result of David's labor as many of the Psalms that we read. So why is this something that would be a rebuke to them? One commentator says, they could lounge around eating, drinking, and making up songs, imagining themselves to be little Davids. In other words, they have are surrounded by every modern convenience. They're in comfort. They, they don't have to get up off of their couches. They just can just live as, as freely as they want to live, and they're inventing all this music, and they think, we're like David. We're, we're, we're kind of in, it's like, what are you talking about? I think of, uh, when, when I think of this, I think of the modern evangelical tendency to always identify oneself with David in the David and Goliath story, right? You ever notice that anytime that passage is preached or taught in Sunday school classes, somehow I'm always David. And I, it's always David, um, what are the Goliaths in your life kind of a thing. Um, isn't it interesting that when that story is told, nobody ever identifies with the Israelites? Like, why, why do we always pick our favorite character to be like this person? I find myself more identifying with the Israelites in that story, okay? The Israelites are needy, they're scared, they're cowardly people, and they desperately need deliverance. It's always being identified with David. And I wonder if perhaps the modern church, evangelical church in America, could learn a lesson from this verse. To not always imagine ourselves like little Davids running around doing this and doing that. In any event, he describes these people as drinking wine in bowls. Okay, you can, you can picture this, okay? The wine glass is not enough, Okay. I mean, we're living opulent lifestyles. Bring the whole bowl to me. I'm just going to just indulge myself. This little cup, it's not going to satisfy opulent tastes. They have also the finest oils, it says here. But they're not grieved over the threats around them. He says they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They don't care about their own brother. They just care only about the immediate satisfaction, the immediate fulfillment, the immediate pleasure that they can get from their opulent lifestyle. Now, because of this, because of all this heaping on, woe to you for this, woe to you for this, woe to you for this, heaping, 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 because of this, we have a very clear concluding verse with a very clear initial word that simply says, therefore... And I would encourage you, as always, to underline or highlight the, the word therefore in your Bibles, because the word therefore is always indicating, uh, because of all of this information that we've just read, therefore this. It's, it's taking this information and this information, and it's drawing a line connecting the two together. Okay? So verse 7 has a context um, you can't just pull verse 7 out of context. It's connected to all of the woes that have gone before it. And we simply read in verse 7 this. Therefore, 
They shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The word therefore indicates that the Lord is now telling Israel what will happen to them because of their self-indulgent, self-confident, complacent, opulent lifestyle that was obtained through injustice. Now you remember, this, this message is not detached from all the ones that have come before in Amos. Okay, Remember that we did say that um, riches in themselves are not evil. It's not evil in itself to have money. Um, specifically, what Amos is getting at is the way that these people obtained their wealth, and they did it through injustice. Okay, They did it through controlling the law courts and making sure that everything always ended up uh, in their own favor. Now, specifically, because of this, they are going to be among the first to go in exile. Now, you might remember that I told you all the way back in verse 1 to pay attention to the word first because we were coming back to the word first, okay? So look down at your Bible and look at verse 1, and you'll see the word first in there. Now, I want you to look at another verse, and that is I want you to look at verse 6. And you will see the word finest also means first. Okay? And then in verse 7, you have the word first, which essentially means self-indulgent. These self-indulgent Israelites are always wanting to be the first in everything. And so God says, wish granted. Wish granted. You want to be the first in line here and the first in line there? And you want to be at the head of the line here and first here and first there? Okay, first into judgment. You're first in that line too. First in sin, first in judgment. It's kind of like a a, a bunch of cows in line for the slaughterhouse, you know? And the cow at the end of the line gets disappointed that he's got to wait in this long line. And so the cow at the end of the line pushes and cuts through and he is first in line. This is the picture that we have in here. Okay, you want to be first in line? Okay, first in line to the slaughterhouse. First in sin, first in judgment. This is what Israel is doing. They're trying to put off the day of judgment, but in doing that, they're bringing it closer and closer and closer to themselves. They will be the first in line in their revelry will pass away. God's judgment is coming. So the question that we want to ask ourselves now is, how can we kind of piece this passage together? How can we kind of put it together? Where do we go from here? We have mentioned several times that the book of Amos, at first glance, could be a little bit intimidating in that it feels so far removed from us culturally. Um... There's so many ways in which we are not like Israel at this particular time in history. And yet we're exactly like them because we have the same human nature. We're prone to the same sins. We have not, we, we think, our particular culture thinks that we are so far advanced beyond every other culture. We're exactly the same. Exactly the same. We're prone to the same sins. We're prone to the same uh, passions, we're prone to the same desires, we're prone to the same weaknesses, all of that kind of stuff. 
So there's actually a lot, I think, that we can pull out of this and, and, and uh, dig out and extract from this particular passage. There's a lot of, we might say, fruit that we can pick here that will be applicable to us. I want to work through five different points of application. The first one is this. Evaluate whether your comfort is built on sin. If it is, repent. Comfort in itself is not wrong. Although I would say that comfort in itself in excess is wrong. Okay. But specifically, if we're talking about this text in front of us, the comfort that they have is built on a foundation of sin. It's, they, they got that way because they were engaging in exploitation. Today, we can commit this same exact sin by building wealth or a business or financial security through lying, cheating, stealing, etc. If you build your wealth or your financial security or stability based on cheating, lying, stealing, whatever, then you are building your comfort on a foundation of sin. And the call for you is to repent if that's you. All of your financial income must be built on righteousness. Proverbs 21.6 says, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Do not get or obtain or acquire your treasures by a lying tongue. Okay? Second application is to grieve over the decline of Christian values in our culture. And this is where I'm pulling this from the text. This comes directly from verse 6, where Amos says that Israel does not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. So what's going on? There's all this ruin and decay, moral decay, destruction around them. And Israel doesn't care. We got the, the wine in the big bowls, and we got the finest oils and the finest meats, and we can lounge on our couches. Who cares what's going on? If we were all honest, some of our complacency has led to that in us as well. Well, I... He, the abortion, I can't see the abortion, so I, it's just there. And I, this over there, I, whatever, let's just have fun while we can. Grieve over the sins of our nation. Don't become complacent so that we forget about those kinds of things. We cannot just go on business as usual when the world is crumbling. Preach the gospel. Evangelize. Weep over the culture. People are dying. Judgment is nigh. Look to Christ. Third, shake off your self-indulgence and your self-confidence. Let me just give us a little bit of a reminder here, okay? You are living in wartime, not peacetime. This is not peacetime. Peacetime is heaven. 
Here, there's war. Specifically against what? Three sources of sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Three places. We're doing war with that. And we're also trying to preach the gospel to those who are unbelievers. This is not a time to uh, live life up. It's a time to get into the game, into the war. Um, I think it was uh, Piper that said one time that prayer is not, um, I'm going to butcher this, but something to the effect of it's not, you know, some kind of a delivery service to just deliver you comforts, but it's a, a walkie-talkie for a wartime conflict, okay? It's, it's this, I need reinforcements. I need help. I'm, I'm, I'm failing in this area. I need grace. This person needs help. Prayer is. We might say it this way. Don't drive your stakes too deeply. I'm not saying don't drive them in at all. We have to, husbands have to be husbands and wives have to be wives and messes need to be cleaned up and all that kind of stuff. But just be careful that you don't put those stakes in too deep. We would be wise to remember what Jesus tells us in Luke 12, this parable of this man who says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Be careful. The fourth application is to reject complacency. Get back into the arena. Stop lounging on the sidelines. Come back to Wednesday night prayer. Volunteer at the Monday night children's outreach. Share the gospel with your neighbor. Take your kids out to Sure House to do a Bible study with them. Read your Bible. Practice hospitality as a means to discipleship. Meditate on the gospel. Men, wake up and lead your wives. Wives, wake up and submit to your husbands. Children, wake up and honor your parents. Discipline yourself. Love Christ. That's number four. Stop being complacent. Number five. Do not presume upon your present security. Unexpected things happen. We are not promised tomorrow. Tragedies occur. Nations fall. People perish. One application here is that you don't get yourself stuck in a 25-year-long cycle of friendship evangelism. Okay? Um, I... Maybe this whole friendship evangelism, quote-unquote, started off as a good thing, but I, it's not really, The implementation has really failed in this, okay? Friendship evangelism means I'm going to befriend this person before I share the gospel with them, okay? But the problem with that is like 99.9% of the time, you're at year 25 in your relationship with this person, and you still haven't shared the gospel with this person. Because now I've built a friendship, and I don't want to ruin it by sharing the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Yeah, they're going to think you're an idiot. Welcome to the club. Look at you guys. (laughs) 
And look at me too. I, I put myself in this, okay? I mean, seriously, what's so valuable that this is like a that this is an important trade-off for us? <laughs> You're the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Okay, let me try to be popular and cool and everyone love me. It's very rare that you can have both of those things, maybe impossible. Um, and by the way, actually, let me just, I don't want to paint it in the wrong light either. Um, my most satisfying and joy-filled relationships with other people are the ones where we have that common bond in Christ. Why would you not want that for somebody else? To have that close of a bond and connection with someone to share the gospel with them. I've entitled today's message, What Does It Profit? And I'm taking this from Luke 9, 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is what today's passage is about. Israel has gained the whole world. They have everything. There is nothing out of their reach. They are at ease, they have money, they have beds of ivory, they have the best meat, they have the best entertainment, they drink wine out of bowls, they have the finest oils, they have every modern convenience. And we have the exact same thing. We have grocery stores on every corner, we have comfortable beds, we have all the entertainment that we want, cheap too, it's not, you can get a subscription to any kind of entertainment for relatively cheap. It's all available to you. We have all the, the, the video games and the social media. And we have the finest clothing, comfortable clothing. We have access to the world's best medicine. That people who had illnesses that would kill them 100 years ago can go on and live productive lives today. Wonderful, wonderful inventions of mankind that we have, and, and I'm not necessarily knocking all of this stuff. In fact, many of these things, I, I love having the grocery store just like two minutes from my house, okay? But what does it profit if you've gained all that and lost your soul? It's a scale. What's more valuable? Israel had every modern convenience, but they forfeited their own souls to divine judgment. May we not follow in their steps. And may we take the counsel offered to us in Amos 5, where we read, Seek me and live. This is not, this message is not a, it's hopeless message. This message is a wake up message. There is still hope. You're still breathing. There is still time to repent and believe in the gospel and point People to Christ in the gospel. There's time for that. May we read Amos 5 where it says, Seek me and live and apply that because right worship leads to right behavior. Let me encourage us with something. We know from this passage that the source of judgment is God. God judges people for their sin. I know that there is a kind of uh, teaching that tries to, to, to remove God from that judgment as far as possible to make him a little bit more passive in that whole process. 
where he's like not involved or looking the other way or whatever, but God is the one who judges people. God also saves. Romans 5, 9 has both. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. Salvation comes from who? The Lord. From the wrath of who? Of God. God's wrath, God's grace. This provision of salvation has been made through Jesus Christ on the cross. Repent and believe on him today. And if you have repented and believed on Christ, you know Christ is your savior, then wake up. Get out of your complacency. Wake up from your drunken stupor and get in the game. Get in, get in the battle. Pick up, pick up the rifle or the sword or whatever analogy you want to use and pick it up and get back in. There's work to be done. There's spade work to do. There's battles to be fought. All for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Thank you, God, for your grace to us and your love. Help us now as we go that we might honor you in all these things, that we would uh, not be at ease in Zion, but that we would engage in what you've called us to do, that we would not be complacent, but that we would engage in the battle to love Christ, to love others. In Christ's name, amen.